Welcome to This Is America, January 30th, 2018. This episode, we have several interviews. The first is with somebody from Oakland, Iwalk, who discusses the recent successful hunger strike and calling campaigns at Corcoran Prison, located in the Central Valley of California. In a recent update, Iwalk on Twitter wrote, quote, On Monday, January 28th, day 20 of the hunger strike in Corcoran, the warning came to the negotiating table. As a result, two of the demands have been met and the hunger strike has been suspended. Strikers are now getting packages, full canteen privileges, and are negotiating a yard schedule. Negotiations to end the lockdown and restore visitation are yet to come. Stay tuned. Direct action gets the goods. Next up, we talk with members of the Richmond Industrial Workers of the World about recent actions by teachers in Virginia that are part of the growing wave of education strikes across the United States. For our last interview, we talk with some folks from Run a Black Women's Self-Defense Front who were on the ground in Boston when people came together to kick out neo-Nazis from disrupting the Women's March. Last week, we conclude with a discussion that touches on the recent back-and-forth debate on workplace organizing, as well as critically analyze the difference in Trump's proposal for a wall alongside the Democrats' so-called smart wall. All of this and more, but first, let's get to the news. The strike in Matamoros, Mexico, continues as workers in Detroit are planning a solidarity rally with them, thus linking the struggles together. As the anarchist communism group wrote, quote, In the U.S., workers are organizing to support the strike in Mexico and against the shutdown of their own plants, with plans for a demonstration in Detroit on February 9th. This shows that workers can realize that they have the same class interests despite borders and talk of a wall, while union leaders spout about forfeiting wage rises, and bonuses to save jobs, Matamoros workers marched to the border crossing between their city and Brownsville, Texas, just over the border, in a bid to win the solidarity of U.S. workers. In the face of drastic cold in Chicago, groups like Little Village Solidarity Network, the General Defense Committee, and the Libertarian Socialist Caucus are gathering warming supplies and distributing them throughout the city. So far, they have raised over $4,000, and every dollar donated will go to help people directly impacted by the cold front. You can PayPal them linked in our show notes. In West Virginia, teacher strike may again be back on as teachers in Mingo County have just cast a strike vote, which is expected to pass. In Columbus, Ohio, people vandalize new parking meters in the downtown, allowing free parking until they are fixed. Proud Boys and Warriors for Christ were run off from a Detroit area library. The far-right goons showed up to protest drag queens reading stories to kids. People mobilized in response. In Portland, people held an anti-ice rally. In Portland, Oregon, and in Brooklyn, New York, anti-fascist music festivals went off without a hitch, and despite threats from Patriot Prayer in Portland, people did not see any uninvited guests. The Inland Empire chapter of the Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement participated in the drop-off of fresh water and supplies at the border for crossing migrants. In Chicago, people made quick work of neo-Nazi flyers, and members of Tank in Oakland were out in force organizing around public housing. If you are a power-hungry proletarian and want to get involved in the Bay Area of California, check them out and see the awesome work that they are doing. An anti-ICE demonstration took place in Bristol County. In Los Angeles, people at the LA Tenants Union are occupying a 
apartment in order to stop the sheriff from evicting a family. In Gainesville, Florida, the local IWOC chapter is celebrating after more contracts for prison slave labor have been going up in smoke. Tensions remain high at the Unistone camp with native people denouncing the actions of the RCMP and resource extraction companies. Check out our recent updates and statements on IGD from the Unistone camp as well as video dispatches from Submedia. That's going to do it for us today. Enjoy the interviews and as always, we will see you next time. chapter and uh, we've been on point with the local Corcoran hunger strike so just real quick for those that don't know uh, where is Corcoran uh, in relation to the so-called United States and is it a, is it a large facility uh, Corcoran is huge Corcoran is a collection of five facilities like a whole complex um, it's in the Central Valley and basically south of the Bay Area you know basically go down to about Salinas and then hop over into the Central Valley, you know, a bit east, and that, that's where it's at. And um, the hunger strike was in their maximum security facility, like a level four called 3C, which has approximately like five units of uh, 200 people each, so almost like 1,100 people in, in that unit itself, and sometimes it's referred to as Old Corcoran. And when did this begin? <laughs> um, well... The, the recent events began in September 28th. Mm-hmm. Um, three members of the Serenios, like Southern Mexicans, like street organization, uh, went to the infirmary being stabbed. Uh, all the Southerners were attacked by this rogue prisoner formation and like a street group called Fresno Bulldogs. And the Bulldogs are basically non-signatories to the agreement to end hostilities here in California, which is a a truce between all the major uh, population segments and, you know, racial groups. Um, Fresno Bulldogs have basically made all their power and influence inside off of being a spoiler, off of essentially uh, breaking up agreements and uh, breaking solidarity with uh, the other prisoners. And uh, they basically went on went on full attack mode and attacked the Southerners. Then the whole facility went on lockdown, or what CDCR calls a modified program, which is a lockdown and everything but name. And um, and the Southerners, which are the, the object of this attack, basically the targets, were um, locked down now for like almost four months. And come January 9th, they decided they could do no more with it. And uh, their segment basically engaged in a hunger strike. And um, CDCR has confirmed that the hunger strike peaked at about 270 individuals refusing all meals. Um, there's a nine meal threshold. Like once you refuse nine meals, they can't choose being on hunger strike. And they uh, spent 20 days until yesterday when the hunger strike was suspended. And they've actually um, they've they've won in, in um, some capacity, right? Absolutely. Like this is a, a big win. Um, Word was eventually sent out and asked for uh, the hunger strike to be made public. Um, Word got to us. We were able to confirm what was going on by multiple sources. And 
started publicizing a phone accident and publicized their demands. And that unleashed a massive wave of support and pressure with families going deep and hard on the on CDCR. Like, there's a comment section on the webpage where we publicized this. It's like 50 comments deep mm-hmm. with family that had been scared for three months, four months, unwilling to say anything because knowing that CDCR watching could easily come back at their loved ones inside and throw them into solitary or do God knows what. Um, including like set them up for dog fights, gladiator matches on the exercise yard, which is basically used as a form of summary punishment and uh, an additional tool of CDCR basically to divide prison populations and create what they call a bad environment. But uh, yesterday, basically with the massive wave of support and basically strikers, families, and outside solidarity workers like IWOC, like formed a mighty force and calls to the warden's boss to internal affairs reporting the guard misconduct and how they're setting up fights to Sacramento, to the warden's office and uh, basically some media interest, interest started coming loose because they started getting calls from you know national publications uh, the warden came to the negotiating table and uh, two of their demands have already been met like now they're all getting canteen again they can, they can buy stuff from commissary and they can receive packages and they're negotiating yard time to be separated from this rogue group so that violence doesn't occur anymore. So two of the major demands have already been met. So I wouldn't call it an end to the hunger strike. It's basically been suspended while negotiations you know, continue and they basically work out or continue to press for visitation and an end to the lockdown and basically resume all their education, rehab, and religious programming that's been denied them for four months. Awesome, yeah, and we encourage people to check out incarceratedworkers.org and see all those comments. I mean, it's pretty amazing just the amount of uh, of interaction with um, family members and people on the outside people have with the IWOC page and the comments they leave. But um, anything else you want to say, um, definitely check out the website for updates on more uh, on this developing story. Yeah, well, uh, fa- some family members are planning a peaceful demonstration outside Corcoran on the 9th and 10th during visiting hours. Um, and there's also activities in Sacramento heating up against reintegration, which is another effort of CDCR to basically instigate violence and cause division in the prisoner population. By basically putting protected custody custody in SNY or sensitive needs yard, uh, people that have been separated, like throwing them back and forcing them back into the main population and then starting a bunch of fights, which basically opens a pipeline up to the shoe. So there'll be a demonstration in Sacramento on the 15th as well. But yeah, check out IWOC on Twitter. And uh, check out incarceratedworkers.org and get involved. And at least just to read the comments on the, the Corcoran Phones app page. It's like 60 comments long, and it sounds like some CDCR employee wandered into the comments section and basically gets lit up by families not taking any of that crap. Hey, thanks so much for talking with us. Right on. I'm Lenny from, uh, among other things, Richmond IWW. And I'm Dylan. So what happened the other day? Um, you know, another set of teachers have now uh, entered into kind of the fray. Uh, what's going on in Virginia? Um, yeah, I mean, similar to a lot of different places in the country, but I would probably compare it most similarly to West Virginia. Um, teachers in Virginia have seen a really intense stagnation and a lot of stuff, but like wages um, and then just funding for infrastructure in school and for like very much day-to-day things. So I think the Red for Red movement's, you know, been picking up in a number of places. And in Virginia, there's been, a lot of people saw what's happening in LA and West Virginia. Um, 
And so there were folks doing similar stuff across the state here. And this was kind of um, one of the first big demonstrations. Um, I think Dylan, Dylan could probably fill you in a little more on, on that uh, history. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there's no question that the strike wave um, that we could trace back to the Chicago teacher strike and then through to the West Virginia strike and then um, more recently to Los Angeles uh, and Oakland. Uh, but there's no question that that's uh, the situation that made possible um, Virginia Educators United and the Red for Ed action uh, the other day. Awesome. Well, you just want to just talk about it. Uh, a lot of people have seen the photos. There was a lot of IWW flags out there. Um, I'm just kind of curious, kind of like what all went down that day, and also how did the IWW participate uh, as a group as well? Yeah, I mean, um, so our, our branch, um, sort of even before this is really picking up steam, we just had a, a pretty high ratio of educators from a number of fields in there. We've got teachers, um, we've got some librarians, um, we've also got some folks who work with like adult education, special needs, things like that. And so I think there was kind of just already a little bit of a, an awareness of it among like members of the branch that it was coming. Um, so, um, yeah, Dylan did, did a lot of work with, uh, with, teachers who are trying to organize in particular trying to like do a little bit more of a vocal or like I guess militant for lack of a better word demonstration compared to sort of the um the very tame demonstration that I think like the Virginia Secretary of Education was expecting. Um yeah, and I think as with, you know, any class struggle there's going to be forces from the ruling class and their allies that are going to attempt to divert the struggle um, away from class self-organization and self-activity. And, and those tensions definitely manifested themselves uh, the day of, specifically with the uh, earlier uh, the earlier rally um, at which, you know, Democratic Party politicians spoke um, and sort of business union representatives spoke, whereas in contrast, the bulk of the rally um, was rank-and-file teachers, um, you know, bus drivers, um, teaching assistants, administrators, um, a lot of different sectors of uh, the education workforce uh, that were mobilized and showed a very high level of self-organization um, from organizing their own transportation um, through cooperation with you know the bus drivers and all these different sort of sectors of the education workforce coming together uh, in a really you know militant uh, and disciplined way. And I think that, that, that those are the two tensions between Balatonis um, class organization and the forces that were trying to divert it towards um, um, more, you know, mainstream uh, capitalist politics. Yeah, I mean, so at the branch, um, we kind of have been, we've been seeing that that discrepancy might develop a little bit. And so, like, some of the local ops and lobster on the state, um, and then mostly, like, like Bill, I'm saying, like mostly just just teachers working on their own out of frustration. Um, really, the reason that the rally was as big as it was and and as organized as it was, had so many resources, really came down to it. I think similar to West Virginia, there was just a lot of fairly decentralized organizing going on by like yeah, rank and file school boys. And so we sort of made contact with some of the folks who were pushing for that stuff and were helping out because you know we're familiar with Richmond. Um, so, I mean, some of the branch members were just doing stuff like helping with, like, getting the buses where they needed to go this morning, or, like, that morning, um, and then 
you know, we've been, we, there, there's been a permit gotten for the event, so there was an expectation from the Russian police that this entire crowd of several thousand people was going to march down a single bike lane, which basically resulted in a crowd that was maybe like five abreast and extremely claustrophobic marching. So, blobs and then just a bunch of local radical folks and like angry teachers who were claustrophobic ended up wanting to take the whole street. So, that led to some tensions during the march itself. Um, they kind of wanted us to march, you know, in this like sort of parade route with a, like a probably three cops every half block all the way down to the Capitol from the Park on the UCU campus. And um, what ended up happening was as the march went on, a lot of people started breaking out and trying to take the whole street. Um, and so there was mostly just a lot of yelling, siren moving, um, police cars being driven quickly up behind old teachers who were just not trying to walk in a tight crowd. Um, but yeah, we were, you know, we were, we were trying to like be able, a lot of us have a lot of familiarity with like street demos and Richmond. So we were trying to just, to a combination of like encouraged, you know, that beautiful act of taking the street and also make sure nobody got stabbed or hit. And as for the, the, the photos of all the flags, I mean, we just, we, we all we don't have a lot of flags. And this is like the first time we were like, okay, we actually like want to take those out and, and, and wave them because it's a windy day and it'll look nice and everybody's wearing red. So. Uh, what advice would you give for anybody that's living in the area where a teacher strike is about to pop off? Like, what can they tangibly do uh, if they're not, you know, if they don't work as a teacher in the education uh, sector? How can they actually participate in material support? I think there's a, a lot of avenues that one could take. Uh, I mean, one thing that was really important in the build-up with Red for Ed was building linkages with uh community members, with parents, and with students, uh, because one of the ruling class narratives around teacher strikes, especially when questions of pay and funding are involved, is that teachers are greedy, or that they're just out, you know, to get more money, they want to take away public money um, for themselves, and that these kind of um, capitalist narratives that get turned against the teacher's class struggle. So, what you're seeing, and you saw this in West Virginia, you saw this in LA, and you saw this in Richmond, was that these are community labor struggles. There's a whole uh, that are on the you know, terrain of social reproduction that encompass a lot of different aspects of everyday life. So I think one way people can get involved is building community support, reaching out to parents, reaching out to students, and and just building that you know that base, base of popular support um, among different sectors because. This, you know, the struggle in education uh, is about so much more than just, you know, things like teachers' pay or um, the physical structures within which uh, education takes place. This is also an opportunity to have conversations about, like, what is the function of education in our society? What types of educational forms do we even want if we had um, that type of power? from below to decide that. Yeah, I, I think, like, exactly that. And then also, like, I think it's really important to stress that, like, one of the things that we were very pleasantly surprised by, and I think a lot of people were with this demonstration, was, like, like Dylan mentioned earlier, um, this was, this is being, you know, presented in the news as a, a teacher walkout, but that crowd was, you know, there's a lot of rank and file teachers in there, but there was also just a lot of people from the entire, you know, education infrastructure that exists. There was a lot of bus drivers, there were service workers, there were people who were fed up trying to repair broken stuff. I mean, there was even uh, a local carpenters union out there. Um, 
And so just recognizing like, you know, what is, what is your personal link to teachers in your family or your community and also like people who are involved in school and that includes students um, and, and going to them and asking them like, hey, what can I do to support you if you wanted to stick your head up a little bit about this? Um, I think, you know, one of the big things that they really needed was like, you know, they really need childcare. It's an entire crowd of people who are around children a lot. What they really needed was transport to the event. Um, a lot of folks couldn't drive, so there's a lot of school buses and church buses that were used, water, things like that. Just like stuff that people who are familiar with organizing street actions could offer folks who are just getting involved with that. Well, anything you want to add on this topic? Two things quickly that we were talking about before you called. Um, we were really interested in the way that in LA, um, there's been a really heavy involvement of, of students, and the students have really pushed the strikes there. Um, you know, in a more radical direction. You know, a good friend of mine who um, recently like started talking about this and really turned me on to that idea. So I think, like, thinking, yeah, thinking about like, you know, kids are smart; they recognize what's up, and like seeing seeing what they might want to do is a good move. And then the other thing I will say, uh, you know, there were. This was a very liberal demonstration, ultimately, but even so, we had a state senator tweet a picture from inside the General Assembly of the crowd claiming socialists infiltrated it, and we had um, a number of, like, right-wing doxing, like, like pseudo-faux-journalists with the history kind of dox people showing up and just taking pictures of, like, very unsuspecting teachers, you know, trying to interview them and stuff. So, like, just watching out for, like, InfoWars types, um, bash, things like that, and, like, you know, I think a lot of people really are naive about um, how good the infrastructure of the light is to events like this. And so that's something that we are aware of, and it's, and it's good to be able to offer that. I know we definitely were able to offer that in regards to, like, police escalation the other day. And so the, I guess if, um, my, my closing thought would be that for all the revolutionaries out there, that for all of us who want to you know, overthrow and abolish the capitalist system and to... Uh, rebuild workers' power. You know, this is a a real important moment right now um, with uh, the strike wave centering around education. And I think that it's, uh, you know, not without coincidence that it's in educational institutions um, that you have all these different sectors of um, communities and students and workers from teachers to, you know, janitors to bus drivers um, coming together in that, you know, for um, all of us who believe in uh, the autonomous self-organization of the working class, um, this is like a chance for us to, to push and to rebuild our infrastructure and to hold the line and to hopefully just keep on pushing until um, we break through this thing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, we are joined here today with two people out of the Boston and Providence area with the group Red and Black Women's Self-Defense Front. Um, we're going to be talking about what all uh, went down and what happened um, in the Boston area. The uh, the lovable Cretans from Resist Marxism, which is a front group of several white nationalist groups and far-right organizations, came to Boston once again because apparently they just love to lose. Why did they come back? Why do they keep coming back to there? They basically just get their rocks off from being trolls at this point. Uh, yeah, honestly, it does sort of feel like they love getting fed down. It, it, it's become formulaic at this point, like how these actions get structured, right? Like 
they show up, they start to yell a little bit, and then it almost immediately gets shut down and they get, like, escorted out. Yeah, I mean, this is a conversation that uh, some people are having is just, uh, you know, it's these these groups are very small at this point. Um, you know, what are they getting out of this? Their rhetoric seems to be inc- increasingly violent in Portland. I don't know if it's the same situation in in Boston. In Boston, it just seems like uh, they just keep trying to get to a certain point and they just can't get there. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, with resist Marxism in Boston, well, this time around... Uh, Pretty much everyone who they brought out for this event was kind of like a bruiser type of person. Uh, so, like, the leader of Resist Marxism is this guy, Chris Bartley. Uh, he just came back from a lengthy stay in Florida after getting run out of town, essentially. Uh, yeah, and, like, along with him came uh, a few members of the American Guard, like John Camden, uh Boston lone fourth degree proud boy Ken Lazardo, uh, who goes on Facebook as Rad Lazardo. Uh, these two masked up people uh, who are kind of like in this with three percent patches on, but were kind of like doing like a Soldiers of Odin type of look too. Right. Yeah, it seems. And I, like I don't want to like dismiss the fact that they are for the most part like just a bunch of weird goofy trolls who are like going through a bunch of internal like fractures of their own but like they are still like a militant reactionary movement and like we make fun of them but we do still have to i think like take them seriously as a movement right yeah very much so well on that note let's talk about what all happened um they had planned to rally kind of before the women's march had started um you know they made a video which was very bizarre and they put up kind of a, a facebook event so i mean they definitely wanted people to come out can you just talk all um you know what happened they showed up and then people surrounded them what all went down the short version is they showed up people circled around them but we didn't really have the numbers to like, do much other than like circle around them and sort of shout them down before the police showed up um and then after that, it just sort of got like the same sort of formulaic action that it has been, at least for us. And I'm sure in like other cities where they're surrounded by cops outside of the kettle, we yell at them, they yell at us. That sort of went down for a little while before like the actual sort of women's march started. They were able to get far closer to the stage than I think anyone really wanted them to, which was unfortunate. And I think something that shouldn't continue to be allowed to happen, but they got protected by cops and like weirdly platformed by some of the like speakers that the women's march had like arranged to come out there. Like they're engaging with them in a way that I think was really stupid. But, um, yeah, there was like this one speaker who was like, everyone in front of the stage on the grass is loved. And like, it's strange liberal ideological nonsense well i was just gonna ask i think that's the other kind of question that uh that these type of events kind of uh bring up it's like you know <laughs> we obviously have a lot of uh things to say about the women's march itself i mean you know all its internal politics just the way it's structured um you know so people are going out to you know defend this space and i don't know it's it's an interesting you know conversation to have it's like we're you know actively putting ourselves on the line to like defend the space that we also have, you know, some like really valid critiques of. I, like I, I will 
will say, I think in this context, like, these folks kind of themselves over, a lot of them being who they are, like, rolled with a bunch of, like, vote for Trump, like, Trump 2020 year, whatever, like, their MAGA hats, and just yeah, because of the, oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, like, there was, there was one person in, like, a Trump 42 Patriots jersey, like, <laughs> like, in the context of the Women's March, that was a really, I think, intentional but also bad move for them because it made a lot of like liberals that probably would have otherwise been like even the slightest bit sympathetic to them on like free speech or like whatever reactionary anti-communist grounds that they have instead like really hostile towards them in a way that benefited folks on the left so do y'all feel that um that being out there and kind of uh being like a a I don't know, a buffer force or just, uh, just people that are willing to put themselves in between. Um, did that like, uh, create any sort of conversations with other people or help build relationships? I mean, was, do you feel like there's something like very positive that comes out of like in, engaging in that certain way? Yeah, we were actually very successful, uh, with flyers and zines, uh, Pro tip, it turns out if you have a flyer printed in color, liberals will just sort of accept you being there. Uh, it worked great. Uh, it had the names and faces of a lot of the people we had expected to show up, uh, just in like a brief explanation of who we were. Uh, it, yeah, it worked very well, I'd say. Like, there were a lot of, like, random older women who like were nervous and apprehensive until they got handed a flyer and then were like vaguely support. Did people from the women's March like end up like taking part in like pushing back against the Nazis? Like did they see them there and then kind of like switch over to the other activity or were people kind of like staying with the women's March? Yeah. So what happened, uh, towards the end of the Women's March was that so the Women's March actually did a little bit of marching, like three blocks around. Uh, as they were exiting the commons, uh, the police who had been kettling the fash for about five hours at this point uh, started to move them off the commons. Uh, we were giving chase. Uh, some random liberals from the Women's March actually wrapped scarves around their faces and joined up with us. We chased uh, fascists around and were being pushed by police. Uh, Boston police, by the way, were being incredibly aggressive toward women at the Women's March, I'd like to point out. <laughs> Yeah, that was, I think, a really weird element of this was, like, the degree to which... I mean, like, at least historically in actions here, like, there's been a, like, weird, with certain exceptions, like, weird neutrality between, like, BPD and, like, anti-fash, where, like, they'll largely either just, like, threaten to mass arrest or, like, mass arrest, but for the most part, again, with limited exceptions, they haven't, like, really engaged in a directly hostile way with folks who are, like, locked up or who are engaging in anti-fascist work, but, like, this was a really, really radically different experience for a lot of us, where they were, like, very aggressive and very, like, 
I don't know. It seemed like they were about as exhausted with the, like, I think, back and forth dance that is how these actions have historically gone for us, as we all were. Um, I don't really know how else to describe it, but yeah, watching cops get really, really physically aggressive with women at the Women's March was a... <laughs> I think definitely at least like a semi-radicalizing experience for a lot of the like normies and like liberals who ended up sort of engaging in the anti-fascist work. At some point they just like loaded them onto a paddy wagon and then got, got them out of there, right? Yeah, that was at a point where uh, they had been sort of at that point half trying to kettle us. Uh, we ran around the block uh, to sort of try and cut them off. Uh, and, you know, sort of blockaded a street slightly. And at that point, I guess, BPD just gave up and then just loaded them up in the paddy wagon and then gave them a nice escort to their, uh, to their cars on their way, mostly back to New Hampshire. Actually, I mean, Boston police like took them to a train station oh, and then right. didn't let women from the women's march onto the train station. Instead, like cordoned it off so that the fash had an escape route. It's surreal. Wow. It's also like, the first time they've just loaded them into paddy wagons and drove them out. This is like a real consistent thing for mm-hmm. Boston. And I think it's just like a question of the sort of degree of police presence police militarization here versus like other cities i think yeah like one sort of like the notable details about uh austin police is that like they train in israel with uh idf they're like the only police department in the state that doesn't train at state facilities yeah there are several uh police departments that uh do that actively across the u.s that um get some training from uh, Israeli Defense Forces. Um, well, anything else that you want to bring up or that came up for you during this uh, engagement? Any other lessons or anything else you want to talk about? Not really. You know, I think, like, the big thing for us, and this has, like, been an internal conversation that we've been having, I think also a large external conversation has been taking place, like, in the organizing scene is, like, what it means to sort of do anti-fascist work when, like... I don't know, like, in the context of increasing police militarization, where, like, the sort of, like, traditional work or the work that's, like, done in Europe or in the Midwest is, like, more difficult in places like Boston, where we have so many police so ready to, like, use really militant tactics against us, is, like, how do we mobilize a broader base? And so, like, it was really, I think, successful for us to, like, have a sort of semi-outward-facing organizational name, like the one that you have for us, the Red Women's Self-Defense Front, and, like, having zines and flyers and shit, like, it allowed us to, like, engage with otherwise, like, apolitical or liberal folks in a, like, really productive way. And I think this is, like, one of the sort of more productive actions for us, at least in that regard. <clears throat> yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and I think, uh, you know, just allowing people, giving them information, encouraging them to get involved. Um, because, you know, regardless of their low numbers, we are seeing escalations in a lot of places. I mean, uh, we're seeing it in the Pacific Northwest with Joy Gibson and his friends, but also we've seen it with, um, 
you know, Patriot Front, uh, they've been out at two pro-life marches the past couple weeks. They were out in Chicago and they were out in D.C. They were actually handing out flyers to those MAGA kids that, you know, were later filmed uh, harassing, um, you know, indigenous people at the mall in D.C. So, I mean, they're stepping out of their kind of, uh, you know, comfort zones and trying to come out more into the open. And, um, you know, they're not going away. I mean, Identity Europa and Patriot Front are still putting up just as many posters as they ever were. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, it's something that's been, once again, very well documented. Like, the sort of, I guess you can call them the alt-light aspects of the reactionary movement have been receding. And, like, what we're left is or left with is the uh, much more... Uh, like reactionary, more explicitly fascist uh, organizations like Patriot Front and Identity Europa, and like, yeah, like there's they're just dropping all pretenses of like caring about like oh free speech, <laughs> you know, like Patriot Par- Prayer in Portland showed up to the IW W Hall to shut down a DSA meeting, like. Right, just a couple nights ago, they vandalized it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think the idea that uh, things are like slowing down or cooling off is 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 not true. I think that it's just as hot as it was, you know, a year and a half ago. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they have as much of a mass base, but the, the people who are involved are much more willing uh, to be violent. Right. I mean, I, even that, I think, is not, I don't know, like, it seems like in the Midwest and in sort of outside of, like, the, the sort of metropolitan centers, like, they are still building a mass base. It's, like, we don't see it as much here, but, like, we've definitely been in conversation with folks who are, like, watching them build movements on the ground in, like, really, really horrifying ways. <laughs> And it's something I think that we need to start like actively countering by mobilizing a sort of broader base ourselves. Yeah, it's not just enough to like show up and be opposition. You have to be building, like, be actively building a counter movement.
important to point out too that uh, you know, like in the aftermath of the Oakland general strike in 1946, there was something passed called the uh, the Taft Hartley Law, which uh, outlawed what they refer what the state referred to as solidarity strikes. So basically, it outlawed you know general strikes. So if um, you know little Timmy on the street is unfortunately shot by the pigs, and then you know the the union that he works for goes on strike and then my union where I work says like, yes, this is egregious. We too will go on strike in solidarity or, you know, workers across an industry that are part of a supply chain. Like we were talking about earlier, decide to go on strike for common interest that could be ruled illegal under the Taft Hartley law. Um, and you know, it obviously has scared a lot of unions who are locked in this kind of legalese, you know, we, we don't fight in the streets. We fight, you know, back in the boardrooms with lawyers. And it's not about, you know, refusing our labor. It's about this like legalistic dance with capital and so on and so forth. Well, which has is- its roots in the AFL and the construction of the American Federation of Labor as an alternative to the CIO, which was run by the Communist Party and the IWW. Mm-hmm. Uh, the AFL, the purpose of the AFL was to essentially uh, make labor a loyal opposition. Right. right? The Taft-Hartley Act was about codifying that law. Um, that's why I said earlier, I think what's going to get really interesting here, what's going to get most interesting in the United States, because there's not a contemporary history of this. After the early 1970s, where in the early 70s, you did see wildcat strikes at, ironically, the Lordstown uh, car factory, GM factory. There was a wildcat strike, a pretty famous one. Uh, there were more wildcat strikes in, in Detroit, specifically in the auto industry. Um, but those were workers acting on their own without the union. And I think what's going to get really fascinating here is how long it's going to take before workers in unions start to act without either the tacit approval of or in any discourse with their formal labor unions. Oh, of course. And that's why that's why the teacher strikes are so important is not because they're just like a lot of people on strike. You know, it's it's. It's not like the women's march, you know, in 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 terms of labor. It's just like a lot of people out on the street. Ooh, it's no. It's a lot of people basically giving the middle finger to mm-hmm. the establishment, both in terms of the union leadership, but more importantly, the Democratic uh, leaders that work hand in glove uh, with union bureaucrats to basically tell the workers, you know, look, this is how much we're going to cut. This is how, you know, this is the small amount of raises you're going to get. You're going to give up this in terms of health care and other benefits. Um, and the teacher strikes basically were a refusal of that in a mass way. And people got, you know, they got more than they would have gotten if they would have gone the other way, which is, you know, the, the real message. And I think, um, you know, it remains to be seen how far that can go. And also, too, just, you know, for the, for activists that are within unions, I mean, if you've, if you've spent any time in a big city or if you've, if you've ever been at a place where there's a labor union, I mean, you realize when you're in there that, you know, there are people with, like, really crappy reactionary politics. You know, <laughs> yeah. there are people yeah. that actually have pretty good, you know, politics that mm-hmm. actually want labor unions to be part of wider social movements and actually, you know, are at their baseline, at least anti-capitalist and so on and so forth. But um, it's a mix and it's a lot, lot of times within these organizations, it's a battle. Well, and if we look at the roots of the labor movement, especially in areas of the country that are really heavily, heavy in organized labor, um, specifically Rust Belt towns where, I mean, you still 
and a lot of Rust Belt cities have 20% labor con- like organized labor concentration. Um, the union's gospel in places like that. You get brought up with that um, almost as a religion. And whether or not your family is union itself, um, because the way that the labor movement existed in places like that, and still does to a degree, um, is that it's very social. It's not limited to the workplace. Uh, that when people go on strike, restaurants offer free food, people offer free childcare. You know, there's all of these different people that step up and help allow the strike to continue. You know, truck drivers refuse to deliver or pick up at those factories. You know, they actually shut the factory down through just refusing to circulate the goods. Um, these kinds of things are uh, what built a lot of those cities, not because of good wages, right, which is what the Democrats like to talk about. They like to talk about how good union wages built these strong middle classes in, in all of these Rust Belt cities. And there's definitely a part of that, but it's more about a mentality and a politics around the idea of having control over your workplace, having the ability to collectively decide stuff that even with reactionary politics aside from that, those things are almost taken as preconditions in a lot of places for a lot of people. And even if you ask a lot of conservatives in the labor movement in places like that, the reason they're conservative comes back to similar values, which is really interesting, right? Um, And so one of the things that we've lost in the idea of organized labor, and I'm personally in no way like a workerist, but one of the things that we've lost in this concept is specifically that organized labor has become workerist. Namely, it's become centered around the workplace and the industry, not around the community and the city. They're like labor brokerage firms. That's how most unions are. You know, That's essentially what they are, yeah. Especially that's, that's how most people actually, I mean, you, I went down to the union hall and they, you know, they told me this is where I'm going to go today as an electrician. I mean. Absolutely. Yep. You see that in building trades more than anything. They take you in as an apprentice, they train you, and they give you all your work. Um, that's essentially what it's become. It's become totally recuperated within capitalism. But the core of the labor movement is not that. The core of the labor movement is very radical, is very collective, and very horizontal. Right. You know, just uh, we've just, lost, to the, just to that, uh, you know, that effect. I had a friend uh, is a member of the IWW. Uh, he worked as let's just say an electrician, but he was with his friend, and they were they had some sort of issue on the job. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know exactly what it was, but he was talking to his friend, and his friend said like, "Well, if we don't get get what we want." We're gonna go ahead and, and wobble it, and yep. I to that to that to that sense he meant that they were going to sabotage something on the job site in order to yep. to get what they want. I don't know the exact details, but it doesn't really matter. And his friend thought this was hilarious because he knew exactly what he meant. And the, but then the guy turned to me and said, "He's like, I don't even really know what that means, but <laughs> but uh, he's like, I know what it means, but I don't know what it means." Yeah. And I think it, it really reminds me of when. During the West Virginia teacher strike, there was a point when the governor of West Virginia, who actually um, he was a Republican, and then at some point, then he switched to being a Democrat mm-hmm. uh, to basically win the election. But he's a really reactionary guy. He he was going to the Capitol during the early start of the demonstrations, and this is all documented in a lot of the um, the interviews we did with a lot of the teachers during the onset of the strike. If you want to go back and listen to the it's going down podcast about this, but uh, he said something to the effect, like all these rednecks 
at the Capitol, meaning the teachers on strike are freaking me out. He said, I'm afraid I might get shot. Mm -hmm. And in response, people then started to show up with the red bandanas around their necks. Yep. And in West Virginia, that had a very real um, iconography because it went back to the so-called redneck war of 1921 when miners essentially – you know, launched an, an uprising of, you know, over 10,000 <laughs> working people against several thousand uh, strike breakers and also mm-hmm. police, you know, with guns. They rose up, basically took over towns, took over entire areas, you know, launched literally an insurrection against the United States military. The United States military responded all the way up to using uh, the Air Force. It's the yep. only time oh. the Air Force has been used on the American population to put down the insurgency. You know, like people say you can still find bullets mm-hmm. in the in the hills. Um, and there's actually, um, if, if you go to Appalachia, uh, if you go to West Virginia, if you go to Blair Mountain, there's um, – there's a museum there and people there are like very like you were saying people are very proud of their history yeah um which i mean the, you know we could do a whole tangent on this about also how uh i think i don't know if it was here or a different podcast somebody was talking about or was it us at one point talking about how appalachia also you know resisted a lot of the confederacy as well so there's mm-hmm. this kind of feeling collectively like you know we've resisted all these like you know states essentially but i just think it's so funny that uh you know like we were saying we forget so many of these of these um you know either these stories or traditions or ways to fight but very quickly people remember and that there are these things that are passed down that if even if we don't know everything about it or we're not totally clued in it's still it's still there just beneath the surface well i think you know, there's something definitely to be said for um, people saying that, you know, the character of labor has changed and that makes traditional labor organizing um, an invalid strategy. And that may or may not be the case. And labor has changed dramatically, right? I mean, significant amounts of millennials are freelancing, things like that. Very few people have stable work. Um, but the one thing that hasn't changed is that if we withdraw our labor in large numbers, it still causes mass crisis. Just inherently, right? Um, capitalism still thrives on um, the construction of, of using labor as wage labor to be able to construct commodities for circulation. And if that gets disrupted, it all falls apart. Um, and so that could happen through financial crisis, right, as we saw in 2008. Uh, but that can also happen through through people actually taking industrial action. That can happen through computer programmers refusing to update their servers. I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways that this can things like this can go down. Um, and I don't think that one needs to be a workerist to recognize the strategic potential role of people taking industrial action. Right. No, and I don't think people need to like either believe in this dream that industrial capital civilization, you know, we're just going to self-manage it and like <laughs> as long as the workers run it, it'll all be okay or you know, we just basically want, you know, a cooperative, you know, worker-owned version of this world and like no, I don't think that at all. Like I don't think you have to just because you're engaged in uh workplace organizing or you see the benefit of of you know, class war, you know, where a lot of people spend hours of their day. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's very clear. I mean, there's obviously if you're if you've been reading, it's going down. There's been an ongoing debate about uh, syndicalism 
and unions. There's actually, uh, when we're recording this, there's an article that just went up, um, up from like a, an anarchist position, basically in defense of workplace and, and union organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also interesting too, because I, I've heard a lot of people like from the post laughter, uh, other positions state like kind of like, well, unions are, doesn't really matter because everybody just works through an app or something like that. It's like, well, if, if you look at the UK right now, they're the IWW and a bunch of other kind of like independent grassroots sort of like autonomous syndicalist unions that are kind of new. They're the ones that are launching strikes against Uber Eats, against yep. Amazon. Like they're doing all these cool things. Like look at Europe. Like they're fucking burning down like Amazon trucks and launching like big strikes inside. Like there's some like serious things going on there. And definitely anarchist, like explicitly anarchist syndicalist unions are like playing a role. They might not yeah. be doing all the things, but they're playing a role. Well, and as a, as a person who myself very much identifies as being a part of the post-left, I think one of the things that, that people miss in this discussion, which is one I've been following very carefully, um, you know, the claim always is the form of labor has changed. It's become a sort of technocratic labor. And as that's happened, that's invalidated traditional forms of workerism. And I think that, that there is a lot to be said for that. However, that doesn't invalidate the sort of production of wage labor as a strategic site of intervention. It's still something that occurs, right? No. It just occurs no. differently. And so as that occurrence shifts and changes in character, it's just as important for us to be tracking the differences in that and how that changes what intervention looks like um, and whether or not it's a, it's a relevant point of intervention, right, and our calculus around that. It's just as important for us to track that as it is for us to track anything else. Um, to neglect that just because labor has changed and syndicalism has become sort of invalidated in its traditional forms because of that uh, is is blindness, really, to the basic reality that most people live every day, which is wake up and they go to work, they come home, they make dinner for their kids, and they like hang out for a couple of hours and watch TV and go to sleep and wake up and do it all over again. And that's a pretty normal life in the United States. And what that means is that it's not as simple as the eight-hour working, eight-hour off, eight-hour sleeping kind of calculus of the eight-hour workday that, in fact, most people now, because they're freelancing, because they're working through apps or because they're working sort of you know, service industry jobs or white-collar jobs, aren't working eight hours a day. They're working like 10, 12 hours a day. Um, they have no leisure time. Right. What that means is that as the amount of hours that people are working is going up, that makes it an even more crucial site of intervention. Um, just because purely there's people there, it's something that we do in our everyday life. Um, I think what's ironic about this discussion in the post-left is that a lot of people in the post-left came into the post-left through the Situationist International. Right, I'm one of them. Um, and the kind of shift of focus into the, the terrain of everyday life. And yet a lot of those same people are so willing to throw out the idea of the workplace as a legitimate site of intervention, even though that in itself is a core part of that everyday life that we constantly are talking about. Right. And it also presupposes that anarchism today has nothing to offer, you know, like, for instance, uh, I don't know, millennials driving Uber or something like that. Like, that's why it was so interesting. Like, I remember about a year ago, it's going down, republished um, an article that came out on the Black Rose uh, federation website about indonesian uber drivers mm-hmm. 
who basically had formed kind of like a hybrid, like it's like the black block meets like Uber union. And it was like, <laughs> they had like four rules. It was like anarchists. And they asked like, are you a loser or a hero? <laughs> and that was one of the things, but they were doing marches and stuff and they would meet in parks. So it was kind of this like collective communal, very autonomous kind of bringing people together. And, um, you know, like, like that's I think that's what anarchism has to offer that. And it's actually produced a vehicle in which all these people that are scattered, you know, that don't have a union hall, that don't even have an office where everybody meets eye to eye in the morning before they go out, you know, to drive their cars. Like they're just people out on the road and all they have is like a sticker on their car, maybe or or in Indonesia, it's a lot of people on motorcycles or bikes and stuff like that. So, I mean, to me, I think that's that's really interesting and that's incredible. And that's also like people thinking strategically and looking around at their surroundings and then actually coming up with a political strategy that actually physically works because they have several thousand people that are in their, you know, their formation. Well, and I think what that shows and this gets back to kind of this discussion around autonomous action amongst working populations, um, I think it's totally valid to say that unions have essentially become forces of recuperation, right? Um, their job is to get better wages and better health care and stuff for their workers. They're not revolutionary organizations. They haven't been for a very long time. Um, and that's a totally fair conclusion. However, again, that doesn't validate the workplace as a site of intervention. Um, and what we're seeing in something like Uber drivers going on strike or what we see when writers go on strike at newspapers or in the movie industry or what we see when tech workers refuse to work, right? So there's this famous example of Google. Um, Google got caught doing uh, image recognition for U.S. military surveillance systems. I forget the specifics of it. It has something to do with drone targeting. Um, and something like 10% of Google employees threatened to walk off the job, like signed a letter threatening to walk off the job if Google continued, and a few dozen people actually quit their jobs and it forced Google to back down from the program. Like, that's significant. Um, Google's technology is really good, right? Using that technology to target drone strikes is devastating. And a few Google employees quitting their jobs and a bunch more threatening to walk off, walk off the job was enough to get the company to back down from a multi-billion dollar deal. Um, you're seeing a similar thing now with Amazon employees starting to raise questions about how the facial recognition technology that they've made is being used. Right? It's like the ACLU just filed a lawsuit today um, demanding that the Department of Justice reveal whether or not they're using Amazon facial recognition technology in surveillance systems. Um so far, that story has been more or less pretty confined to the tech industry, but the effectiveness of Google, of Amazon's facial facial recognition technology is almost unparalleled. Well, that's what I that program that's significant, significant. That's what I think is really interesting about uh, kind of these new labor formations is that essentially they are going back to a pre uh, New Deal type confederation where they're really underground. Um, you know, private, well, not private, but like underground, you know, illegalist formations. I mean, like, I think if you look at like a, um, a group that's really interesting, like the tech, the tech workers coalition, yeah. 
which is very radical, uh, very like horizontal, anti-capitalist, has really good politics. I mean, mm-hmm. from my understanding, they're really growing mm-hmm. and they have you know, a lot of reach and a lot of these um, expanding tech worker struggles. But I mean, they're not like signing up uh, people uh, for, you know, like a formal membership to my understanding. And also it's not um, like their goal is not to like win uh, union like labor board elections. It's to like create an association and they have meetings and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's formal in the sense it's like in real life, face to face people meeting, and getting mm-hmm. organized, but it's not like a formal organization in the sense, from my understanding, where, um, you know, you're like voting for an election that's then recognized by the state. Yeah. You know, but at, but at the same time, like if you look at something like Burgerville, I mean, they essentially have the same model, even though they're doing elections and they're getting recognized. I mean, they're still spreading out their membership to all these stores, which is really incredible. I mean, they have like three stores now that are like officially part of the union. But, I mean, they have all these different programs, uh, like people help watch each other's kids. Mm-hmm. They have food and stuff um, that they share. Uh, they have, like, podcasts. They have, like, you know, uh, support in different in different ways. I mean, I think it's, it's really cool. And it's yeah. awesome to see all these different experiments pop up. Yeah, I mean, with the tech workers specifically, like, I mean, tech workers are well paid, right? They live comfortable lives, generally, for now. Um as tech work becomes more common, as kids start getting trained to code in school, as code boot camps become a lot more uh, a lot more easy to attend, a lot cheaper, um, and as companies outsource a lot of their development labor, um, I think a lot of tech workers are starting to see a future in which being a software developer, for example, um, becomes a you know, low-wage, white-collar job, essentially. Um, but at the same time, they're also, at least with a lot of the tech workers I talk to, um, are starting to realize what their actual power is. Right. So at the end of the day, tech workers, for example, um, just like how Uber drivers make Uber Uber all their money on their own vehicles. Right. And take all the risk so Uber can make a profit um, to the point where Uber just would go bankrupt almost immediately if if the drivers all just refuse to work for even a day or two. Um, tech workers have this remarkable amount of power in that all of the code that runs Facebook. All the code that runs Palantir surveillance systems, all of the code that runs, you know, X key score for the NSA, all the code that runs Google, all the code that more or less organizes our work schedules and our lives, determines when we get our tax returns, all these things. All that code is written by tech workers, right? Lowly tech workers, no one will ever hear their names, who, you know, grind away writing code all day for a relatively solid wage. Um, and what it looks like to me in some of these areas like precarious freelance labor or in the tech industry is that organizing isn't even so much as you said about wages, right? Although there's an element of that, especially in lower wage freelance labor, but it's also about the ability to immediately impact things that are being done by the people that pay those wages, right? So just like you see um, workers at, at Amazon starting to reveal details about facial recognition technology, and you see workers at Google threatening to strike over uh, Google technology being used for surveillance. Um, there's a lot of other workers that work in other places that are doing somewhat shady stuff um, that if they ever realize their power and decide to get some ethics, uh, could, could make a real go at actually shutting a lot of this stuff down. It'd be much more effective than we'd ever be able to be from the outside. 
Um, this has been a great uh, tangent we've got off on. I know we really wanted to talk about border policy, too, <laughs> so I feel like we should probably switch to that. Um, but, uh, again, I think it is important to continue to have these discussions. Um, I feel like – I think whether it's, like, syndicalism or, like, the post-left or whatever, like, just become these boogeymans that, like, we kind of like to, like uh, – you know, beat up and reaffirm, like, a position against, you know, like, stupid, you know, like, armchair idiot asshole, and then the other one's, like, you know, stuck in the past, <laughs> moron with the red card. I mean, like, it's like we end up kind of, like, talking past each other. It's yep. like, and we also don't have to all do the same thing, you know? It's like, I think it's great that people, like, are really good at different stuff and really good at different kinds of organizing and... Yep. You know, workplace organizing is hard because it's like if you're organizing there and you're really putting in a lot of work, like you still got to go there in the morning. And if people know you're a crazy anarchist trying to like do all this stuff at your workplace, <laughs> you know, they know where you work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they know everything about you. Yeah, so uh, what's important is that in these discussions where everyone devolves into hyperbolic name calling, um, we all need to essentially have a little bit of humility here and realize that none of us know what to do, right? Like, none of us know the magic, you know, spell or mixture of whatever to make things fundamentally different. We don't. If we did, we'd be there already, right? None of us know this answer, that this is all a series of experiments that we're all undertaking for different reasons. We're thinking about them different ways. Um and that's important to respect, right? We all need to understand that we could all be wrong about all of this, um, let alone be wrong about whatever, you know, nuanced sect of anarchism we decide to affiliate ourselves with. Exactly. Well, one thing no one can go wrong with is to go on to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and become a monthly supporter. Just kidding. Um, no, you should really do that, though. But um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's, uh, let's dive into this talk about um, – you know, the border, and I know that you've, this week, that you've been looking into it, um, you know, we were talking this week about kind of like what we wanted to discuss tonight, and I feel like so much of, you know, the stuff around the border is just really getting swept under the rug, because yeah. all we basically hear is that Trump wants this concrete or, uh, you know, like beamed, beamed wall of some sort, and then we hear this kind of other voice which is like well yeah we don't want a wall but we want you know security or yeah. border safety and like what does that actually mean mm -hmm. and what does that actually mean for like human beings for people on the ground um what does this actually translate to in terms of policy yeah so the the mantra we've heard for the last four weeks has been everybody agrees on border security but we're really trying to decide is how and that Democrats don't want a wall and Trump wants a wall, right? But really, the, the discussion goes much deeper than that. And it's one that's actually grounded more in military theory than anything else. Um, that when we think about the border, we're not just thinking about a line in the sand in the southern United States. The border is everywhere at this point, right? Um, we've all lived through an era of mass migration, um, we've all lived in an era in which ICE now operates essentially everywhere, right? 
um, in which the border patrol can operate within, I think it's like 75 miles of any border, which a lot of people live within 75 miles of a border. Um, that we live in an era in which increasingly everybody's being tracked, uh, employment records being tracked. We have citizenship checks when people start trying to get jobs to the point where companies are trying to forge records. The, the impact of the border on our everyday life has been profound. Um, but the ways that that's happened and the mentalities that that's been driven by um, can really be drawn back to discussions that started um, after the war in Vietnam. So after the war in Vietnam, um, where the United States got trounced by the Viet Cong um, and had to, to leave Vietnam in 1975, um, a lot of the people that came out of the Vietnam War um, were people that we later would hear about. Colin Powell is one of them, right? And around Colin Powell, um, there was a study group that built up in the U.S. military with the goal of trying to determine how to prevent the war in Vietnam from ever happening ever again. Um, and their decision, what they kind of the conclusion that they came to, was that the way to do this was through frontal confrontation and overwhelming force. Um, a good example of that is the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, where there were days of airstrikes. Those airstrikes targeted um, radar stations, command and control, communications, water purification, um, pretty much all the infrastructure that would support everyday life within Iraq. And Iraqis are still dealing with the fallout from that bombing campaign. Uh, we saw another example of that in Serbia. And the goal of those sorts of campaigns is to overwhelm uh, the oppositional force, whatever that happens to be, and to minimize casualties on the American side by doing that. Um, that morphed into a concept within the U.S. military that overwhelming force and sort of the image or the aesthetics of overwhelming force um, are always an inherent good. And that's in a lot of ways where uh, Trumpian border policy and Republican border policy at large is really coming from. Um, it's this idea that in Trump's world and in the Republican world, if we assume that migrants are the enemy, right, which is essentially what they're doing, um, then what we have to do is we have to both um, construct the apparatus of overwhelming force and use that as a deterrent for people to come here, right? And this isn't just a Trump policy. These policies have been in place slowly. They've been get put in place slowly but surely since the Reagan administration. Um <clears throat> where Reagan ended a lot of the guest worker programs that had been in place um, and had instituted, you know, mass border security. That got, that amplified uh, pretty dramatically after September 11th with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and the insertion of the Border Patrol inside of that. Um, the Democrats are making this argument that they don't want the wall, that they want, quote, other things, like other security things. Um, but what does that mean, right? So if we go back to... Um, the Clinton administration, and then in a much more contemporary way, the Obama administration. The Democrat plan for the border has always been not necessarily to police the border less or to militarize the border less or to make the border any more of a, any less of a war zone, but it's been about doing it differently, right? So what they're proposing essentially is that we turn the border into um, a mass surveillance zone with cameras and motion sensors and infrared cameras and helicopters and you know mobile response forces and things like this. And the goal of that is to essentially construct the dynamics of area denial, right? So the 
idea that a person can't enter an area purely through the potential that one's going to get caught by a device that they can't see. Um, and that uncertainty is actually what, as the Democrats are claiming, is a much more effective strategy than frontal force. So let's think about for a second our cities, any of us that live in cities, right? In the past, and even in some cities now, say take Chicago, for example, there's a tendency of the police department to respond with overwhelming force to anything, right? And that's part of a strategy of, of constructing fear and constructing deterrence through overwhelming force. Uh, but if you look at a city like New York, for example, or London, right, you will still see police in a place like New York, and you'll see police in a place like London, but what you'll see a lot more of are cameras, easy pass readers at the intersections, tracking people's motion, like movements through the city, license plate readers, and they're all very public about what those things are. Um, it's not a secret that in New York City they have command centers where they can see the feeds from thousands of different cameras. Um, so what does that do? So if you're a person and you're thinking of engaging in activity that the state doesn't approve of, um, essentially it's much easier to see the police car coming than it is to see every single corner of every single building to decide whether a camera's there or not. And so what we're really watching here um, is we're watching the Democrats take lessons from what they consider to be uh, the kind of formative, the sort of formative lessons they should take from the war in Iraq, right? So this mentality of using surveillance as a deterrent um, and using surveillance as a form of area denial is something which actually comes from the troop surge in Iraq um, when David Petraeus was put in command in Iraq. And they sent thousands of troops, I think it was something like 50,000 troops, to Iraq um, to sort of overwhelm the Iraqi insurgency. But the way that they did that is they did that through irregular patrolling. So they would patrol around towns, but they wouldn't do it all at the same time, always at the same time every day. They would stagger the patrol pattern. So you never really knew when American troops were going to be in proximity. And what that does is it creates uncertainty. Um, they put surveillance cameras everywhere. And what does that do? It creates uncertainty. When they arrested people, they would take all of their biometric data. They take your fingerprints, of course. They'd also take a retinal scan, and they take a DNA sample. Um, and that's a tactic that they've ported over to Afghanistan now. Um, that's also a tactic that some governments are starting to use. Um, I just heard through the grapevine that the Jamaican government now is requesting, demanding, not really requesting, but demanding that every single person on the island undergo retinal scans in order to get a driver's license. Jesus. So it's kind of mass collection of biometric data isn't necessarily meant to create correlations in the system if something were to occur that the state would be interested in. It's merely to create the idea that that could happen, right? So there was an article written in Insurgencies, I think volume two, volume one, um, I forget which, but uh, it was actually about the sort of irony of the Edward Stone leaks, Right. So the NSA, for example, is an organization which existed in total secrecy ever since its founding. No one really knew in any specific detail what the NSA actually did, um, except that there was this vague idea that they did signals intelligence and also cryptography. But there really wasn't much of an idea of what that looked like. Um, and what that meant was that the NSA could function very effectively as an intelligence gathering operation. No one could take countermeasures against something that they didn't understand was happening. 
right? So they were able to gather information through secrecy. But one of the things that's actually happened since the Snowden leaks have occurred is that the NSA's very existence has become a sort of strange deterrent that a lot of people who would otherwise, you know, be careful online and use the internet in responsible ways and not leak their personal data everywhere, a lot of those people have either fallen into privacy fatigue where they're just tired and don't care anymore, or they've just stopped using large elements of the internet. Um, they've cut themselves off. They've stopped communicating with people. That actually the revealing of information about the NSA, I'm not saying that revealing the information was a bad thing, but one of the unintended consequences of that is that the NSA now is an incredibly effective deterrent for anybody being able to communicate openly, which is a very different role than it played before. But it's not a deterrent because they're actually listening to everything that you say or reading all of your emails. It's a deterrent because they could, not because they are. And so, you know, I mean, the term panopticism or to talk about, you know, the sort of panopticon or panoptic effects is trite and banal, but there's a reality to that. Right. Um, that if the U.S. government, for example, announces that they're putting up a bunch of cameras in the desert to monitor everyone that's coming over the border and then puts up dummy cameras, it would essentially have the same effect as if the cameras were real. And that seems to be the Democrats plan. So Democrats have this strange idea that surveillance is impartial. Right. And you'll see this in cities around the country that instituted things like traffic camera programs, which would take pictures of people running red lights, that the argument in city after city after city was that, well, if the police are going to be racist, cameras can't be racist. So we should just put cameras everywhere. That was the argument. And in at least a few cities, those very same programs have been shot down through referendum. But, you know, it's what's funny about that, you know, uh, yeah, actually, um, you know, Phoenix, Arizona is another good example. They used to have those uh, speed cameras that actually looks like a little guy yep. or sorry, a little person, a little speed person, speed person with um, like a literally like uh, there's a tall beam and then there's like a head and then it has like a little arm that's like a little gun yep. and the, uh, they put them on the freeways. And the idea was that, let's say you drove over 85 miles per hour it would take your photo automatically mm-hmm. and then you would get sent, um, you know, you would get sent a ticket in the mail mm-hmm. and people, this was like uh, 10, 15 years ago. People were so pissed off about these things. They were literally, there was one instance where somebody shot up uh, one of the electrical boxes that controlled this thing. And unfortunately there was a worker inside and killed that person, mm-hmm. but people were destroying these things, shooting them. Yep. There was actually a funny viral video that even made it all the way to it's still on Infowars if you want to go watch it but <laughs> anarchists anarchists literally dressed up as santa this is in the phoenix area and they went and they put this was during christmas time and they went and they put these uh like big uh like present boxes and like bow ties and it was like and they called it santa's against the surveillance state and actually the video is really cool is because it makes a connection between um, the policing of movement and yeah. surveillance at the border yeah. and with the speed cameras. And they were basically their point was, is that, you know, whiteness is the line that basically separates us from saying like, it's messed up when it happens here, but it's okay when it happens there. Yeah. And, um, and basically long story short, people were actually able to, you know, push out the speed cameras and, um, 
you know, I remember people, anarchists were writing about the speed cameras at that time. And one of the, the other things that they were saying was that cities were also um, basing their city budget on yes. the money coming in mm-hmm. from the ticketing. So essentially what it was is that it was, you know, a form of a poll tax. Yeah. And and like what you were saying is very true is that, you know, liberals are saying, well, at least, you know, these can't be racist. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, that's really true. There's a really fabulous video. I actually really encourage people to watch from Vice. It's called Driving While Black. Mm-hmm. And it's about I think it's in St. Louis. And it's about an African-American journalist that goes undercover with, um, you know, a local activist. And they literally just drive around. I think it's St. Louis or something like that. Some neighborhood. And they get pulled over like five times. Yep. And the point that they make is that it's not necessarily that they just that they got pulled over. Mm-hmm. It's that when they get pulled over, they have to go to court for fix it tickets for different, you know, little infractions, you know, whatever. And that in doing so, when they go to court, they have to pay a minimal court fee. So even if they go to court and it gets, you know, the, the cop isn't there, it gets let go, you know, whatever, it's $5, you know, you fixed your headlight, congratulations, you can go home. They still have to pay that small court fee. So obviously all these court fees add up. And essentially what their argument is, is that this is essentially a poll tax on the black community yeah. just for the crime of being black. And that, you know, this isn't happening in other neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. it's interesting as well, because if you again, if you go back to like, you know, the classic line of whiteness, you know, what are we upset about? You know, no taxation without representation. Mm-hmm. But again, here you have a community that is essentially being taxed for the crime of the color of their skin and being a poor working class community. Yeah. And they're just repeatedly getting taxed through the through tickets for no reason whatsoever. Well, and this is a point that um, there's an organization in New York City called Crypto Harlem, which is amazing. And anyone that's interested in cryptography, privacy, security stuff should definitely check out what Crypto Harlem is doing because they do really amazing work and they've been doing it for a really long time. But one of the reasons that they exist is that their goal is to train people in marginalized, highly surveilled communities how to essentially circumvent surveillance. So they specifically are active in Harlem, where there is still a large population of people of color who are significantly less wealthy than the white yuppies moving into the area that exist under heavy levels of surveillance. And if you go around any city in the country, you will see surveillance cameras concentrated in areas that are primarily populated by people of color and poor folks. Um, And the border is, is no different, right? If we look at the border, what's happening in these circumstances is that the camera itself is a neutral technological apparatus. The placement of the camera, however, um, functions completely around social dynamics, one of which, very prominent within those, is racism and the history of American racism. Um, why are they only talking about putting these cameras, heat sensors, motion sensors, things like this on the southern border and not the northern one, for example? Right. So we're watching the same dynamics that have turned our cities into fortresses under Democrats, right? Because mind you, most major cities in the United States are governed by Democrats. These cities have become fortresses, essentially. And what we're doing is we're watching that same dynamic dynamic of fortification um, also start to function around the border with a slightly modified understanding of what fortification means. So fortification now is no longer about building one giant wall 
It's actually about turning this sort of terrain of surveillance into everything to where everything is capable of being monitored, metriced, watched, right? Potentially. And the potentially is the operative term here because it's not an actually, or at least we can't determine whether it isn't actually. We don't know if someone's watching that that footage right now. We don't know if that camera is actually recording. We don't know if that camera is actually real. We have no idea. But what's fundamentally important about that is that we have to live as if they are. because And this goes back to something else Edward Snowden said, which I think is fundamentally important for understanding this conversation. One of the things he said was, the question about surveillance is not the question of whether or not we're doing anything wrong, right? So many people want to um, discuss this on the level of whether we're doing something wrong. Um, it's not a question of whether we're doing something wrong. Instead, it becomes a question of us losing autonomy over being able to decide for ourselves whether our actions are right or wrong. That at the point where somebody else is able to view our lives from distance, they all of a sudden get to fall into the position of the arbiter of our actions. They get to determine whether our actions are good or bad, whether they're suspect or not. We lose that autonomy completely. And so at the point in which surveillance becomes the sort of operative strategy, as the Democrats are proposing, not only are we going to be increasing the level of surveillance domestically within the United States, but we're going to be fundamentally stripping the migrants themselves of autonomy over the ability to be the arbiter of their own actions. Right. We're going to be stealing that from them. We're going to be making that decision for them at some sort of border patrol office where they may or may not watch these things. We're also going to turn the border into essentially a military zone where drones and helicopters start hovering around all the time looking for people with with heat sensing infrared cameras. Right. Which, and again, I mean, you know, as we've said on this show before, like about the wall, like all the reasons why you wouldn't want to build the wall or all the reasons why it'd be stupid to militarize the border. Not only would it be a waste of yep. our tax money, um, you know, it was going to lead to a lot of people dying and a lot of just broke people that are trying to literally cross a line in the sand uh, to get a job somewhere, yep. you know, to go through a lot of uh, misery. And also, too, the other thing is, is that, look, if you cross into the United States, you get caught where are you sent to? You're sent to an immigrant detention facility. These are private institutions that make money. A lot of these companies, especially, are the same companies which donated millions of dollars to Donald Trump's campaign yeah. and are doing very well financially under his regime because they banked on the fact that he was going to put a lot of uh, migrant people, undocumented people, in private detention facilities, and that's exactly what's happening. But not only that, but if you get in there, just like if you go to jail – you can bail out of those places. So you can, if you, if you get caught up and you get sent to a detention facility, they'd be like, well, you can leave, but you got to pay us a thousand dollars and then we can let you out. And then you come to your, you know, cause the only reason you're in, this is the whole, you know, <laughs> this is the whole reason people were talking about abolishing ice is that okay. the whole reason that you're in this detention facility is because you're waiting to go to your, your immigration court hearing. But you can bond out of these places and then go back, of course, and then go to your court hearing later and you can get your stuff together and talk to a lawyer and not have to be in this disgusting hellhole. Yeah. But, of course, that's making lots of money for these companies. And it's, you know, it's disgusting. Well, and so then, I mean, the question is, like, why talk about the nuances of border policy? 
Well, partially because I think it's important for us to understand the implications of what's going to happen. But most importantly, there's been this tendency, I think, amongst, you know, the left, people in the post-left even, right, um, to fall into this kind of reactionary position when it has to do with things that deal with Donald Trump, right? He's such a reprehensible character. It's super easy to um, knee-jerk reject everything that he's saying. And tacitly, if not overtly, at least be somewhat happy if his opponents win something, right? Um, And I've seen this play itself out on Twitter, right? Um, You can even see it in blog posts from, you know, so-called radicals that keep talking about, you know, well, you know, it's not everything we want, but the wall is like a giant symbol of racism, so the wall is bad, right? And that's true. But what we can't do is let the critique of the wall become tacit support for the Democrats, that there is fundamental agreement between the two on two points. The first is that the border absolutely needs to become essentially a military military zone and that the military zone needs to be able to have tentacles that stretch out throughout the entirety of the domestic space. That is definitely a point of agreement. The other point of agreement is that the border is what constructs American identity. Um, that it's the ability, national identity is not just constructed purely through uh, positive identification, but it's also inherently structured through exclusion, right? The ability of us to be able to say that certain people need to have certain paperwork to come over the border is the very thing that constructs the legalistic construct of the border. And without that, the very ability of state sovereignty to function collapses entirely, right, into something else, right, not necessarily inherently better for whatever that means, but into something else. And so what we're really looking at is we're looking at a government shutdown which is impacting the lives of millions and millions of people in incredibly negative ways, Um, all over essentially nuances of border militarization, right? They're debating the strategy of border militarization, not whether or not border militarization should function or whether the border should be there at all. Um, They're really debating at what form do we build an incredibly repressive apparatus to maintain the functionality of the border. That's what's really at stake here. And if people aren't outraged about that, I don't know what's really going to get them up in arms. It's infuriating. I mean, I really encourage people uh, go back and listen to the last This Is America podcast. I mean, the 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 conversation with the volunteer of no more with no more deaths is really heartbreaking. I mean, literally the border patrols. I mean, I hate to laugh, but it's 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 sickeningly you know laughable. But basically, the border patrol and the um, fish and game like wildlife fish and game, who I think is in control of this area like no more deaths is is accused of dropping off water and food literally on american soil this is public land their crime is to is going onto the u.s side of the border and leaving water and food for people who since like 2000 like 3000 people have died out in this area yeah. maybe it's not that much maybe it's just a couple you know lower than that but a couple thousand and um, what the Border Patrol says is that they shouldn't do that. That's illegal because, one, they're damaging the environment. Yeah. <laughs> so they're using this, like, woke language. It's like, no, bro, you're, you're damaging the environment, man. And then, two, they say what, they, what the migrants should do instead is that they have these towers 
and you're supposed to click on the towers and you're so you know i'm stuck in the desert i need help and then the land management people are supposed to come out and get you and then of course they're going to throw you an immigrant detention facility but the no more desk person was saying you know out of a thousand attempts by people they've only had two responses yep which is insane yep so basically they're saying like (laughs) you can't put this water here Mm -hmm. because it's gonna impact literally this this area used to be a a disaster like they used to explode bombs and like army stuff out there so you can't bait this land that we just spent like decades fucking up we don't want you to put a bottle of water there. And these are the same people that come by and literally slash this shit and then throw the trash on the ground. Remember when No More Deaths put out that report where the fucking Border Patrol is just walking by and they literally just kick these bottles of water so hard that the caps fall off yep. and then they just tumble. It's disgusting. And then they want to turn around and say, like, you're damaging the environment. It's like you're the same motherfuckers that just left the trash in the fucking desert. Yeah. Yeah, well, and... I think a point, another point that no more deaths people consistently make and have been making for years, which I think is um, entirely salient and something that we need to be very aware of, um, is that what they're doing is, to the degree that no more deaths is effective, they're mitigating to some degree the deterrent effect of border militarization, at least in a, a certain area of the border region. And what that's doing is it is allowing people to to cross, right, or to feel safer crossing. Um, the fact that the Border Patrol is willing to let people die in the desert rather than allow them to get water isn't even so much about the Border Patrol caring about how many people they kill indirectly. It's about the Border Patrol recognizing that survival lessens the deterrent effect and that if they can lower the survival rates – um, that it's less likely that people are going to cross. And so what's amazing about that is that at the end of the day, we're existing in a reality in which preventing people from crossing the border is considered such an inherent good that they're willing to let people die over it. And that's an incredibly disturbing reality. All of that to uphold nothing except the very idea of national identity. Right. So it's there are these intensely personal stories about the border, which are incredibly important for people to listen to. But there's also these fundamental um, these these sort of fundamental structures that exist because of the border um, that really form the very foundations of the state itself. And it's something that we need to be analyzing on both levels all the time. To really understand what's going on and why. Otherwise, it seems entirely nonsensical. And when it's nonsensical, it's unable to be fought effectively. And again, I mean, um, I hate to bring it back to, um, you know, our buddy Bannon. Yeah. But, uh, you know, remember when he took the stage at CPAC, you know, his his three-point plan for revolution was, uh, you know, economic nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and also... Um, econ- sorry, economic nationalism, um, and also you know 
I don't remember the term he used, but it basically like border sovereignty. It was like creating a national identity out of, you know, securing our borders. And the third one was, you know, the destruction of the administrative state, which, of course, you know, we're seeing playing out in grand detail right now. Um, And, you know, again, like we can see where these two things link up. And, um, you know, I almost wonder, like, would a wall maybe even be better? Like, would it be better for them just to, like, waste, like, 20 years, like, piddling around in the desert, like, building a shitty wall than, like, some, like, robocopying, dystopian, like, militarization with drones? And, I mean, they already have all that stuff, but... Yeah, and and generally when <clears throat> when things like state policy are being discussed, better isn't an operative category, <laughs> right? Um, the entire base reality that allows this discussion to even be possible is based in existential subjugation, right? Um, it would be folly for them to build a giant concrete symbol to American racism in the desert, especially because people can just dig holes under it. Um, but the very idea of border militarization um, is outside of debate. And I think the reality is, is that very clearly the border wall is not going to actually function the way that people think it will. Um, there's been so much mythology built up around the idea of the border wall at this point that it's become almost deified, um, a sort of hopeless potential dream for the future or something. Uh, but I, I don't think anyone should be fooled that the second that the border wall, if it were to be built, fails catastrophically as it will, they'll just resort back to like revert back to um, using more panoptic means. It's what's available. It's what technology exists and um, what sort of what I would consider to be legitimate or, you know, within the military, legitimate military thinkers are saying is that concentrating a bunch of force at one point makes no sense. What you really need to do is spread this stuff out and create deterrent effect. Um, that's essentially at this point U.S. military doctrine. So if the border were to the border wall were to fail. They'll just fall back into that anyways. It's the entire trajectory of both military affairs and law enforcement at this point. And again, you know, another uh, another thing to harp on is that, you know, we all kind of laughed when Trump brought the troops out to the border and then like they, they all went back or some of them went back. But um, the Pentagon uh, basically spent more money and sent more troops along the border and stretched them out. So, I mean. Yep. They, you know, that kind of thing that we all were kind of laughing at originally. I mean, that's the new normal now. Oh, yeah. 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 And that's I mean, the Democrats always, <clears throat> whether this is an overseas military strategy um, or domestic policy, always have this idea that if you can use cameras and drones and deterrence and surveillance, uh, you don't need to put a lot of troops in a place. You can just deploy them where they need to be when they need to be there. Um I think a lot of people need to go back and read the uh, – it was a document released by the U.S. military in 2010, um, and it's the – what's it called? Uh, U.S. military strategic doctrine document. They released them roughly over 10 years. Uh, but this was released under the Obama administration, and essentially what they were doing is they're outlining the exact same strategy that Democrats are proposing for the border. Um that, as they say, the era of large force footprint operations are over. There should be no more occupations. Um, that essentially their goal is to project U.S. military force globally through you know, surveillance drones, airstrikes, and special operations 
um, special operations missions, right, to do targeted strikes against individual people that the U.S. military has deemed um, able to be killed, essentially. Um, and they've laid this whole strategy out. Ever since that document was written, the Democratic Party itself and also their kind of attendant think tanks have really, really pushed this vision of diffuse force with surveillance-heavy strategy. Um, and it, it's the same thing that they're pushing at the border. No one should be fooled. I mean, this is this is a strategy. The Democrats are literally, literally trying to impose a strategy for the border that comes from the occupation of Iraq. Um, it is a military strategy based in the attempt to try and reinforce U.S. global hegemony um, without having to maintain a military of 5 to 10 million. Um, and that's exactly what they're essentially trying to put forward for the border now. Nancy Pelosi has alluded to this when she says, well, we don't need a border wall. We just need cameras and motion sensors and infrared cameras everywhere. Well, this is and again, I mean, they still have, you know, they still know that they're going to depend on migrant labor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, nothing's going to change. I mean, they... Yeah, it's it's just sick, you know. And, and and again, like this, this we're literally talking about the mechanization of thousands of people mm-hmm. filling detention facilities, dying in the desert, um, living as second class citizens in the shadows, um, always afraid of ICE knocking on their door, or the just pulling them over, <laughs> depending on where you're. Yeah. Living, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as as a person who who lives in an area where there there's you know, a not insignificant amount of undocumented people, and in which there have been, you know, not in the immediate area, but outside of this immediate area, um, large ice raids recently, um, it is absolutely terrifying for people. Um, anyone that's ever lived even mildly on the margins, right? or sort of refuse to live sort of acceptable life for even a, a short period of time, um, can know a fraction of this, but I think it's almost impossible for most of us to imagine living your everyday life that way all the time, constantly in fear of a cop looking at you the wrong way and trying to check your papers, right? It's horrifying. And it's the kind of thing that um, if you really look at critiques of authoritarian regimes are part of what gets critiqued. It's a sort of constant policing of everyday life, right? But as we go forward, this is exactly what we're seeing. And that's not being driven by Republican law and order politics. It's being driven by Democratic mentalities of community policing and counterinsurgency. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.